What if I found something within myself that wasn't godly? What if I found something within myself that wasn't righteous? Although it gave me so much beauty in my life, the one thing it gave me was a fear of who I am, which can be deeply difficult when you're trying to come out and come into yourself. Hello and welcome to the podcast to another episode of Queerly Overthinking. Today I am joined by the lovely producer of the podcast, Cass Cooper. Hello. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. It's always a pleasure to come from behind the mic to in front of the mic and be able to spend some time with you, Adam. I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. Um, Ciara has... So we have an interesting origin story. I actually found Ciara in the pandemic on TikTok. And just started following her and really was interested in her deconstruction journey and the things she was sharing. And I think I like, you know, in the classic, as the kids say, slid into her DMs uh, and asked her if she did consulting and if she would be interested in being a content creator. And from there, we have done some work both professionally, but I think the best part about our relationship is our worlds intersect in so many different ways. Um, academically. I'm just going to give a little rundown about you. Uh, She has a BA in American Studies from UC Berkeley and her master's in Theological Studies from Harvard. She has a unique background in African-American Studies, Psychology, Theology, and she really is focused on helping organizations deepen their commitment to equity and inclusion. So that's the professional hat. Personally, she grew up as a Pentecostal. She has, again, that master's in theological studies from the Harvard University, which is a big deal. And really, she's really focused on being a human that connects other humans and makes safe space and holds safe space for us to question things in the systems and structures that we live in, as well as how we interact with them interpersonally and within our bodies. So it is my... it's. Dream pleasure to welcome you, Ciara. I'm so glad you're here. Oh my goodness. That was the nicest inter- I wish you could say that to me in front of my mom. I feel like, you know, <laughs> oh, my mom, that was so nice. Um, I will. I totally will. Send her my send me her number and I'll be like, hey, you don't know me. <laughs> that but. was so that, genu- that was genuinely like really like thank you. That was so kind. And thank you, Adam and Cass, for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. I'm clearly overthinking for us to talk about all the things from deconstruction to sexuality to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm excited to dive in with both of you. Well, to dive into this first segment, I would absolutely love to learn more about this, like your background specifically, um, growing up Pentecostal and just kind of finding that intersection between queerness and faith. Um, How did being Pentecostal, like have an upbringing um, impact your journey in coming out? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. And so as Adam, as you mentioned, I grew up Pentecostal, specifically Assemblies of God. And Assemblies of God is a very fundamentalist religion. And so you believe the Bible is perfect. Uh, you learn very early on that you must like obey the Bible perfectly. And so that really includes a lot of messaging around celibacy, but also things like cussing, even like your gender norms, when you hang out with boys, when you don't hang out with boys, all that's kind of baked into the theology. I highlight that because I learned very early on that like, self-control is deeply important. And I think something that we'll talk about in a little bit, of course, is my sexuality. And it can be so difficult to come out and explore yourself when you're taught that your morality lies in your ability to control yourself. But so much of our sexuality actually means that we need to get kind of outside of these narrow identity boxes we've been given to like 
explore who we are, to name who we are. And so for me, even though there was so much beautiful about growing up Pentecostal, it gave me community, uh, it gave me a sense of self, it gave me a sense of purpose that was beyond myself. What it didn't give me was a language of self-exploration. And I think, if anything, it made me a little bit afraid to explore who I was because what if I found something within myself that wasn't godly? What if I found something within myself that wasn't righteous? And so I think, although it gave me so much beauty in my life, the one thing it gave me was a fear of who I am, which can be deeply difficult when you're trying to come out and come into yourself. Oh my gosh. I love how you specifically highlighted that the it didn't give you the tools to necessarily explore further than what they were setting for you and the community. And I think that's really interesting when you dive into it further, because there is such a guardrail of think this way, feel this way, believe this way, only, you know, do these certain things. There's a lot of I would say, you know, control perhaps or other words you could use for that to keep people kind of in, in a certain mindset and a mind frame and not ask a lot of questions. I mean, for me, I was like, why can't I ask these questions? And, you know, I want to yeah, yeah. see yes or no for myself, depending on the situation. <laughs> I think too, like the big thing is when you start asking those bigger questions and especially when you begin asking them of your faith leaders, when they don't know the answer, it forces them into an area where they're not comfortable and therefore they put that discomfort on you. I mean, I grew up missionary Baptist, which is less fundamental, but still extremely uh, rigid when it comes to interpretations of the Bible. Mm. It was more of a, well, you just don't have enough faith Mm -hmm. because you're questioning rather than I have so much faith and I, that God can handle my big questions. And so that's why I'm asking these questions of the religion, of the institution, of myself. Um, and when that gets shut down, especially like at an early age, it really does frame the way you experience the divine going forward, right? Like, I don't know, Sierra, we're going to talk more about your coming out story, but for me, that was shut down at a very early age of like, well, you shouldn't be asking these questions. And looking back, it was because my faith leaders were not asking these questions and because they just thought I was too young to really truly comprehend the the potential answers, I guess. I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever get an answer to that, but it was more about them than, and less about like me and what was going to grow me. Absolutely. And I also think, as you mentioned, Cass, like a lot of faith leaders can't answer those questions. And something that I've talked about recently um, on TikTok actually was about how I realized a lot of my white male pastors like didn't have to ask the same questions I was asking. Like I needed to ask God about suffering in the world. I needed to ask God about colonialism and its impacts and about the harm that happens to those who are systemically disenfranchised. And I realized that for a lot of my white male pastors, which in Assemblies of God, being a white denomination, most of my pastors were white male they didn't even have to have the same level of curiosity I had to trust God. Like I needed to ask more questions to to really figure out, is this God just and safe? Because the impact and the reality I'm seeing in the world is deeply unjust. Uh, But you're telling me that this God is just. And so that's something that I think about as well is uh, the positionality of my pastors and how I think that actually limited their ability to explore God beyond kind of this, like the narrow confines that they gave us and that they believed. Yeah, there's a great book, um, If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? And she talks about Black faith and Black liberation um, in the confines of like a white savior mentality um, and really looking at how that whole idea of infallibility of faith 
is so rooted in whiteness being absolutely the right way to position yourself in the world. And so as black and brown people, how do we make sense of our the skin in which we live, but then also the faith that we are supposed to have based off of this very narrow interpretation of what God is supposed to be. So it's a really great book. We should put it in the notes for sure. It also makes me think of the book, God is a Black Woman, which I evangelize about. I love this book. I think everyone should buy this book, um, which is by- I just ordered it actually off of your TikTok suggestion. I was yes. like, I got to read this book now. Yeah, I need yeah. some commission off this book. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, it's an, it's an amazing book. <laughs> <laughs> it's an incredible book. And so much of it is about uh, the author, who's a, a Black woman and also a professor in, of religious studies. And her own journey of like unlearning a white male colonial God. Um, and I think that's just part of this process of, at least for me, like religion and sexuality and coming into myself. So much of it was about redefining God and really kind of pulling back the layers of the God I'd been given. And as kind of you both have talked about, that can be deeply difficult when a church demonizes curiosity, when you're taught that your curiosity itself is sinful. Uh, and then your curiosity can be tied to heaven and hell, the sphere of like, if I'm too curious, is my soul eternally damned? And so I think all that work that we have to do to really even be brave enough to ask hard questions, like shouldn't be un- like uh, minimized. Like I'm always really proud of people when they can be deeply curious about their religious upbringing, because that curiosity is dampened at a very early age, stamped out of us through fear at an early age. So I think it's very, I think it's miraculous when people get to that place in their faith practice. I'm always very uh, impressed by that. Yeah. And Adam's talked about that in his journey in previous episodes about how really truly asking those questions is such a part of becoming an adult and like really making sense of how you can be in community with people as an adult where the safety lies or doesn't lie for you as an adult. I'm just really glad to have you both to be able to learn from, especially as the resident cishet on this podcast, like it, it's a, it's a completely like. different vantage point, <laughs> right? Like it's a completely different vantage point that to your point, like white men don't necessarily have to think about, but I don't have to think about either because it's always assumed that God and the creator, Jesus, whomever you want to lean to is going to honor our straightness. Mm. And that is very complicated. So, mm. so another resource that I love, uh, particularly around deconstruction is gardening. Like gardening has been life-saving for me. Uh, gardening's done a few things for me. Like one, it reminds me as a black queer woman who was taught that my queerness made me separate from God, that I'm not actually separate from anything that God has created or made. Uh, like when I'm in my garden, I just feel like me and nature are kind of in this like collaborative relationship. And that's been so beautiful. But I think the thing that's why I love gardening the most and why I think it's an amazing tool for deconstruction, like so much of deconstruction, the conversation is so uh, intellectual, you know, even I've talked about it pretty intellectually, like, right, how do we kind of unlearn a colonial God and a white God? But a lot of it was also in my body, like this way I had been taught in my body to feel afraid of seeing myself as spiritual or this way I've been taught of in, afraid of going back into prayer or meditation. It just felt traumatic, like, and I think for context, like I've seen queer people be exercised when I was a kid. I seen them have demons prayed out of them. So I had just been taught, you know, that queerness should not be in these spaces, you know? And so, yeah. Oh, look. Yeah. Um, say, say that, Adam, because that, <laughs> that's the universal can... truth, right? Oh, wait, I don't know. I'm, I'm 100%. Yep. I've had a, a attempt at exorcist on me. 
It's mad um, traumatic. Like that's genuinely very traumatic. Like no one should have that. Like when you are, t- I think that we don't think about these things as a type of violence, but they are a type of violence. Like to to say some to say to someone like there is something wrong with the core of your being, and now we're going to publicly tell everyone else there's something wrong with the core of your being. Like there's a lot to unpack in that, you know. And like I think that so many queer youth are put through that in the church, or they vicariously see it. Anyway, I'm just sorry you had that experience because I don't think we name that it is a violent experience. And as a theologian, yeah. I see it as a type of violence, you know. The idea that like you have this violence inflicted on you and then you're still expected to maintain relationship with that community is like mad crazy to me. I, I like mm-hmm. I have no like the audacity. Mm. Like, like Adam, listen, I will meet your parents and I will be very kind, lovely and, you know, all the things or whatever, but high key, like that's some bullshit and I'd be mad at it. Every time it comes up in my mind of like that happened to you, I didn't even know you then. Mm. I want to fight. I want to yeah. fight. And oh I want to to meet you twice, Adam, but you just have such a special, gentle spirit about you. So I think like that can be frustrating too. Like, and this is the thing that makes me angry at religious institutions like when we're talking about deconstruction and we talk about religious inclusion it is a policy issue too you know like when i've done work around lgbtq homelessness youth homelessness youth are lgbtq youth are 40 percent right of homeless youth which tells us that there's something happening with family rejection that definitely intersects with religion and when we look at even the incarceration numbers of lgbtq people we see the impact of like the rhetoric of the church and so i think the frustrating thing like you said cass is we're supposed to maintain relationships like this rhetoric doesn't create systemic violence and interpersonal violence and both are happening. Uh, and so then I think the onus becomes on queer people to kind of take it on the chin and to see this rejection as loving and to be in this community that is hating them, but saying that it loves them. And it's, it's very complicated. To be forgiving because that's what God would want you to do. Mm, mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, how foul is that? Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In the same vein and same question, I'm curious, is there one specific experience that kind of kicked things off for you in questioning what you initially believed and started that process of deconstruction for you? Yeah, that's such a great question. And uh, yes, there was. I So as I mentioned before, I grew up Pentecostal, Assemblies of God, and I was like all about my faith. I was very fervent about my faith, uh, very enthusiastic about my faith practice. And I just didn't have, I think some young people like in their adolescence kind of have a critical eye towards their faith a little bit. Like they'll be like, this thing happened in church and it's a little weird. Or my pastor's saying this thing and it might not be right. But I just didn't have that. Like I was really two feet in all the time. And so I think that's important just to kind of frame my journey a little bit. Uh, but when I was 19 and I was my freshman year in college, I realized that I liked my roommate who was a woman. And that was like so confusing for me. Like that had never happened for me. And I never really had had to confront queerness in this way. And especially not in a way where I felt like I couldn't shake it. Uh, and so that was a really difficult experience for me. It kind of made me want to pray away the gay. And it put me into a place of really being self-critical. I couldn't really be self-loving. I felt really uncomfortable in my body. And one day I called my sister just kind of like to come out to her. I don't think I meant to come out. I just think I needed a place to decompress. Uh, And I said, like, you know, I think this thing about myself is true, but you know, the church we grew up in, you know, that I want to go into ministry. Like, this is not something I can ever accept about myself. And she said, like, a God who asked you to fissure yourself is too small. And 
like maybe it's not that your sexuality is wrong, but that the faith we've been given is just too tiny like to receive you. And what if there's something else out there that can receive you? And so it was her telling me like, you don't need to fracture yourself to belong in this faith practice. You don't need to harm yourself or fissure yourself so you can be enough, like you're whole already. Like that conversation saved my life. And it actually put, threw me into the world of deconstruction. I met queer Christians after that. Like it just catapulted me into a whole new perspective. So it was kind of this moment of falling for somebody that was of the same ginger, gender and then having this transformative conversation with my sister that completely altered the course of my life. I'm so grateful uh, for those interactions. Oh my gosh. I love your sister. She's so great. I'm yeah, like, she's amazing. I always cry. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. No, I- it's amazing. Yeah. Those small life-saving conversations. Like sometimes I think we think life-saving moments are, I don't know, something else. But for me, it's always been in these small, quiet moments with people where they invite me to see myself and to see myself differently. And I think for especially when we're kind of in the religious deconstruction place or questioning anything about what we've been given in religious and institutional spaces, we do need permission from someone to think a new way. Like, I think sometimes we think about liberation as this individual thing, but for deconstruction, for me, that has been a community process. I've always needed someone to kind of help me get to that next level of transformation, because when you've only been taught to see God in another way, you might not not even have the imagination of what another God framework could be like, what another conception of God could be like. So, you know, again, like she really like rescued, what she said rescued me. uh, And I'll always, that's always going to be like the, she really just, that was a lifeboat for me. (laughs) Like that was, that was everything to me. So I'm, I'm always grateful to her. I think that speaks so much to so many people who have had similar experiences because having just one person that you can feel safe and comfortable with, someone who you feel like isn't going to judge you, someone who is willing to see you for you and not through the lens of preconceived notions or stereotypes or things like that and still lovingly embrace you, that is so cherished like like i i am so grateful for people who who are those people who, and i i want to be that person for others as well i want to be a non-judgmental friend who can anybody can say anything to you know i just want to be a support so i'm so glad that they were there to be there for you and i'm so grateful for the people in my life who've been there for me and Cass, i'm sure like likewise as well yeah. <laughs> yeah in our episode with ben green he talked about how life is about building the community that you need and mm-hmm. so much about that interaction with your sister because it she called you in to remain in the community mm. and it wasn't a question of either or at that point it was like how do we create a both and situation how do we allow you to like make space for these questions inside of our mm. community the questions inside of you and really ultimately the questions that we have of God. And I love the idea mm-hmm. that if God is asking you to break apart yourself, then your the thought of God is too small. Because why would a creator make something that needs to be fractured and fissured in mm. order to be made whole? Mm. Now we got to sit with that cast. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> that, oh, yeah. Uh, no, that was no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, what's interesting is healthy community, I think really actually shows us like who God is. But I used to run an LGBTQ deconstruction group and something that 
people would ask me every week at the end of our group is, are we just making up a God who loves us? Are we just making this up, right? Is this in our head? And how could this possibly be true? And, you know, at the beginning, I talked about how I was taught that, like, God is self-control, that it is a repressing of the self, that that is where God lies, that me and God are separate when we are born, that we call this original sin theology, the idea that humans and God are separate. And then through our self-control, through our obedience, we, we are, God will see us, see us as worthy of being received by them, right? And what I loved about the model that, of God that my sister invited me into was a God who received us radically as we are. And I just don't think many of us are even given that conception of God, even outside of LGBTQ identity. Um, I meet so many Christians who are hypervigilant about themselves, their own mind, what they think, what they feel, what their joy is, what their pleasure is, because they're always scanning themselves for potential sin, potential wrongness. And so my sister, just even in that small conversation, like made me realize in, in that moment, I experienced God, probably for the first time in a long time, I experienced God, like this radical reception of who I am, this radical love of who I am, this idea that I'm enough in my body in that moment. And I think that really is who God is. And I think it's interesting that in my LGBTQ group, people were like, this idea of God is easy. When I actually think the hardest work for us to do as humans is to believe that we are worthy of being received as we are. That is actually much easier for us as humans to say all the reasons we're not worthy of love and our neighbor isn't worthy of love. And so I think it's interesting that we make the work of like radical love and acceptance, like the easy work, and the work of like obedience and self-control, the true Christianity, when I actually think as human beings, like the struggle we have deeply is loving who we are and also loving other people without judgment. And I'm grateful that, again for my sister for helping me kind of shift that framework a little bit. Well, it's it's being the hands and feet, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, not to get like hyper churchy right now, but like no. that is like Matthew, I think it's Matthew 20 or Matthew 21, where he talks about like, you have to love your neighbor right you have to love your neighbor as god loves you and in order to love your neighbor you have to also love yourself right and so like and be the hands and feet be the church in the world is through the communities that we build and everyone if we truly believe that god is a radical force for safety and care then we as his hand as there i'm trying to make sure i include god as non-binary which is one of the conversation but their existence allows us to be that as an extension of them when we live in community with each other. And that might be like creating safe space. It can look like calling people higher and like asking bigger questions of them. It's holding them accountable. It's loving them truly. It's sitting eyeball to eyeball and understanding where they're coming from. I don't know. The God that I was given at its core to me is not, something that is hateful and harmful and when we're Mm. inflicting harm on other folks via the community that we're supposedly building in god's name like what does that say about what we think about god Mm. Mm. i love how there's been this intersection between community and finding those resources and those support networks within your own social circles um tied with the process of deconstruction and reconstruction and like finding like where do you land in all of this. Um, I'm curious specifically if there's one specific example or action that meant a lot to you that you started like putting into practice that became a helpful personal outlet or tool that helped you continue on with the next hour, the next day, the next week as you were figuring this process out. 
Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And I say for queer people, like environment is very important. And I also will say like experiencing is believing. And I'll explain what I mean by both those things. So one is I work with a lot of LGBTQ people who are trying to deconstruct their faith, but they are still in the same church community that we're raised in. And there's many reasons why we don't leave the church communities we were raised in. It's our, again, it's our communities, our safe space. And I'm not saying that LGBTQ people have to abandon that. I think sometimes we give such a radical framework of what deconstruction has to look like. But I do want to invite those who are listening, who are queer, and who are interested in a more accepting framework of God to consider how being in that environment every Sunday is corrosive to the self. It is not healthy to be in an environment that only receives part of you. And I think that my biggest concern is that it just teaches us that rejection is a form of love. And I never want people to conflate those two ideas. Um, And so one, I would say really reaching out for resources that receive you fully. Even if you want to go to that same church on Sunday, find an LGBTQ small group on a Wednesday. I just want you to be in a space where you're experiencing something else and to see how that feels. Uh, and the second thing I'll say is, uh, experiencing is believing. And so I say that to say, like, the thing that really blew up in my world, besides what my sister said, was around Berkeley's campus, I started to incidentally just like meet LGBTQ Christians, people who are identified at that intersection. And so I would say finding lesbian ministers, gay ministers, trans ministers online and looking up their work, seeing their conversations, looking at their network is also really helpful. Uh, And last thing I'll say, I didn't frame this at the beginning of the question, but I do want to add this in, is a work that I did with my, when I had my LGBTQ group was I would invite people to imagine for one minute to five minutes of of their day, a God that loved them. I said, it can be any God or it can be any figure, whatever it is. I want you to just sit in that experience for one to five minutes a day of what it feels like to be radically loved to think nothing is wrong with you for those five minutes, to only affirm yourself for five minutes, to imagine light holding you, whatever it is. And so I also just encourage people to think about a gentle practice of prayer or meditation or just wellness that is just centered on love, not you fixing yourself, not you praying anything away from yourself, just you receiving yourself. So those are some of the practices I engage in and also some of the resources that genuinely saved my life. Oh my gosh, I appreciate that so much. And I have to say specifically, the one that really resonates with me and where I'm at in my life is the time for yourself to just like sit and embrace that self-love. Like meditation specifically, I have seen my anxiety level come down. I can see my heart rate come down by at least 10 to 20 beats per minute every time that I meditate. Like all of it combined with just that mental uh, awareness of yourself and the messaging that you're sending to yourself. Like, I love it. I love it. Can I actually define deconstruction for folks real quick, just in case they haven't heard it? I actually think that that's really good because I think that the listeners of the podcast, like some people are, you know, deconstructing. Mm -hmm. Some people maybe have never heard of it. Some people might stumble upon it just because of your name or Adam's name or whatever. So I think that would be really helpful. Just like tell us what deconstruction is. Yeah. So I consider deconstruction a systematic interrogation of what we know and what we believe. And it's a desire to kind of understand how our religious practices fit in with our current values and our sense of self. And I often think about deconstruction not as like a stripping away of our faith practices, but a transforming of our faith practice, where we can say, okay, what are my values now? How does my faith align with these values? How am I changing? Does my faith have space for my transformation? And why I think deconstruction is a beautiful process is because many of us, as we've talked about, We're taught that curiosity about God itself is a sin or a mark of our lack of faith. And what deconstruction reminds us is that we're actually always in the process of defining God. 
And those definitions of God are changing as we change socially, as we change culturally, as we change individually. And I think one of the most important questions deconstruction asks us is who defines God and why are they able to define God in these ways? And how are these definitions both beautiful, but also repressive? How are these definitions places where we can come together, but can also cause strife? And so what I think it reminds us is that faith is an imperfect practice and an imperfect process, one that we're defining together. And that gives us license to ask new questions, to change these definitions and to continue interrogating together what these definitions mean and their impact. Oh my gosh. I seriously love that. We got to park. Oh my gosh. The the idea of (laughs) like, wait, say again, the faith is a what a ongoing process. Is that what you said? Yeah, faith is an ongoing process of like communal definition. So we're always kind of defining and redefining God um, as our society changes and our culture changes. I mean, something that I think about a lot is like we talk a lot, a lot about homophobia in the church, but homosexuality was not even translated into the text until 1946. And so the question becomes, well, why did it get translated in that time? And what was happening socially and culturally that made us feel like homosexuality was sinful particularly around this time, and why do we translate it? So again, when we kind of peel back the layers of biblical interpretation, we'll see the ways that it's also paired with America's sentiments of what is right and right is wrong, white folks' sentiments of what is right and, right, right and wrong, and how that kind of impacts our theological interpretation and all that. Yeah, one of the things that I really enjoy about your TikTok, I'm just going to do a plug, and like the it, it just is very focused on all of those threads running together and the content that you create is so impactful because it allows space and holds space for us to talk about queerness, talk about white supremacy, talk about just generally like the world in which we experience, talk about faith. And I just, you know, it's, it's just really, really powerful that you hold that space so well for so many people. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for engaging with it. I mean, something I'll say is like, I didn't think anyone would be interested in deconstruction content at all. Like, even when I was studying religion, I was like, no one is going to be interested in this. Like, I studied theology because I needed that for myself. I had questions about whether God could love me and receive me. And I think what's been so amazing about doing this work has been realizing how I wasn't alone, how alone I felt 10 years ago. And how not alone I feel now and how beautiful it is to see that these conversations can happen in public now. Because when I first started entering into this world, like these just were not conversations that were being had. So I'm really grateful to you and Adam for seeing value in this work, uh, because it means a lot to my ten, myself 10 years ago and 15 years ago. Like to be able to do this feels genuinely miraculous. So I'm, I'm really, really grateful. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to start crying now, too. <laughs> Uh, because I completely agree with you. I just feel like I am trying to be the person that I feel like I needed back 10 years ago, you know, that I didn't know that I needed until now. And so I completely agree with you. (laughs) Yes. Myself now couldn't like imagine, couldn't even imagine me being here, existing, sitting with you two and the work that you do. Um, and so it's, it's beautiful how rapidly our world can change. And I think sometimes I have to remind myself like to honor the self who was brave enough to ask those first deconstruction questions because like look at the seeds that it planted, you know? And so for a lot of folks, I try to remind them like the beginning of deconstruction can be painful, but for me, it feels like it planted seeds that like grew a tree that like is shade for myself and others. Like it gave me so much more than I thought it would. Um, so again, th- thank you for seeing the value. It, it means a lot to me. 
Queerly Overthinking is produced by Adam Harper and Cass Cooper. It is edited by Adam Harper with audio mixing by Necessary Outlet Productions. You can follow Queerly Overthinking on Instagram at Queerly Overthinking and find more at www.queerlyoverthinking.com.